Well, alas, good morning to you, gang. It's been a good week so far, I trust. There's a tiredness in the room this morning, which is good at the end of camp. It means you had a good time and gave it your all, so appreciate all of you. Uh, it's been a blast getting to hang out with you guys this week. And I just want to remind those of you that made a decision last night, whether it was for the first time as you raised your hand and said, I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ, I understand what he has done for me, and you embraced the gospel. For those of you that may be saying, hey, I, I need to recommit my life, I've been walking wayward, and, and man, this is going to be a marked moment for me, that I'm going to go home changed, and I'm going to walk with God differently in the environment that he has me in. And even for those of you that said, hey, listen, I'm, I'm interested, I'm not there yet, but I, I want to continue to investigate. I want to encourage you all to do that. But to, for those of you specifically who have put your faith in Christ, I want to remind you that something has happened. You are leaving this place changed. You have been reconciled. Sin has been taken out of your account and righteousness has been put in. You have been declared righteous before a holy God and you have been adopted into the family of God. Galatians says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. The father sees you as his son or as his daughter. That is a beautiful reality. And the text goes on to tell us that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Friends, you leave this place new. I don't know what narrative defined you when you walked in here. I don't know what lesson or maybe thing that you're listening to that determines maybe your self-worth or your value. But I wanted to declare to you this morning, based on the truth of the scriptures, those voices no longer matter because God the Father has defined you. And he says, you are mine. I love you. You are valuable. You are worthy. And I laid this, the, my, my son's life down for you. So regardless of how you may feel about yourself, the truth is you are a child of the living God. Can we just stop for a second and pause and acknowledge the fact that put their, those that put their faith in Christ last night, I just want to personally say thank you for what you have done. So let's celebrate that. One other thing that I want to remind you that happened last night, because sometimes these things don't feel different. You don't walk out of here and see like a Jesus parade that happened to your life. Like, yeah, I, 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 I prayed that prayer and I believe that, but everything around me looks the same. Let me tell you what the scriptures say that's happened to you. Romans 6 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin continue to live in it? The Bible says that in the moment that you put your faith in Christ, that the mastery of sin in your life, that slave-master relationship has been forever broken, that you no longer have to obey the vices, the addictions, the things that are idols maybe in your life that you thought would bring you joy and comfort and all of those things, those no longer need to be true in your life. Now, you've been broken from the mastery of sin, but not the presence of sin. There will still be, as is true in my life and certainly will be true in yours, an ongoing reality that sin calls your name. You used to have to obey, you no longer have to. Sin's influence will still be there. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 7 as he talks about that very real and personal struggle in his life. He said, for the good that I want, I do not do. 
but I practice the very evil that I do not want, for if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. You will continue to leave this place battling this idea of walking in the Holy Spirit that we'll talk about this morning, or walking in your old nature, the flesh. And yet I want to remind you, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. You are loved by the Father in the present state that you're in. Him knowing either the future sins that you will struggle with this afternoon, you are not condemned. So let that reality wash over you for those that have put your faith in Christ. So I want to continue now in our last session really in the book of John. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 14. And we're going to roll through kind of the rest of the book again at a high level. It has been our pattern. And if you think through this idea in John chapter 15 that we mentioned last night and we've mentioned several times through our journey together that the root of sin is this idea of autonomy, of doing life without God. As we think about this moment where Jesus is in the upper room, days away from death, I think he had on his mind that reality, that he would soon be leaving his disciples. And he must have known that they would be in a a, a spot of bother by that, that they would be troubled by the fact that Jesus would soon be dead and they would be left reeling trying to figure out what happened. And he reminds them in John chapter 14, verse one, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. One of the truths that I wanna remind you of today is you leave this place. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are no longer alone. God has left you with all that you need to walk out the Christian life. And he says in John chapter 15, verses four and five, this is the goal of the Christian life. Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, that is the goal of the Christian life, that we abide in Jesus Christ, that we remain in him, that like branches, we are tethered to that vine as our source of life and our source of nourishment. That is the the goal. And I wanna talk to you about three primary vehicles, three means of grace that God uses to help us as Christians accomplish that reality in our life. And that'll be kind of the outline of where we're going to today. Three things, God's word, God's spirit and God's people. Let's talk through those. Number one, let's talk about the idea of God's word as a means of grace in our life. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17, praying to the Father on our behalf, he says, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you remember, John 15 through 17 are Jesus' last words to his disciples before he goes to the cross, full of red letters. And earlier this week, we talked about the truth of God's word, that God specifically revealed himself through this supernatural book, and this word is truth. Paul said, all scripture is God-breathed. We talked about the value that this is and that we can believe it. And Jesus says it's by this means through which God uses Uh, or desires to sanctify us. That word sanctify is just a fancy way to say, set us apart. He wants us to be usable for him as a tool in his hands. That is a, a vessel willing to do whatever the Father would desire. So what does it mean 
for us to be set apart, right? Do we, do we flee to the hills? You know, do we, um, do we change our entire lifestyles? Do we, do we live in this like Christian bubble and never interact with, with non-Christians? I, I don't think that's the desire of the Christian life or God in our life at all. To be set apart or to be sanctified means that we are growing more and more like Christ in our character, our attitudes, and our actions every day. Romans 8 says it like this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God says, my desire for you as believers is to look more and more like Jesus every day. It's like a potter. I mold you and shape you. Not the externals, but the internals that you would look and act and be more like Jesus Christ. And the word of God is one of the primary vehicles through which God is going to do that. Listen to this from Psalm 119 as the psalmist describes the value of the word of God in his life. He says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There's this beautiful imagery here of what the word of God does for the psalmist. He says two things. It is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. If you think about a lamp, if I was in this room and it was completely dark again and I had a lamp with me in my hand, I can see maybe a, a six-foot radius, but there's not a chance that I can see any of you ten rows back, right? It illuminates what's immediately around me. It shows me what is here in that truth. And if I want to see what's further, what do I need to do? As I take a step, that lamp is going to take a step with me, and it will illumine more of what's in front of me. It's, a, it's an area around me. It doesn't show me everything, but it shows me what I need to know. And yet it's also like a light into my path. Have any of you ever flown and landed in an airport late at night? Have you ever looked out the window and seen those blue lights of the runway? You can't see the runway. I mean, there could be like a diesel truck parked in the middle of it, and you would have no idea. But those blue lights illumine the way. And as you get closer with that lamp in your hand, that will become visible, and God has given you a direction to run in. That's the idea. This light illumines our path, and when we walk without the light, we look foolish. Last night, speaking of foolish, I knew we were going to go to Victory Circle after chapel, so I took my headlamp, and I put it in my bag, and I thought, I'm going to need that after chapel. And as I walked out this door, I ran into Russell right over here, and he's like, hey, do you want to walk up with me to Victory Circle? And I was like, absolutely. And I thought about grabbing my light. I was like, no, I don't, I don't need my light. It's just, it's right up there. I can see the lights. So I started walking with Russell, and it got darker and darker, and I got a little nervous, but I was a little too prideful in that moment to pull out my headlamp, and I was talking with him, and he was saying something I wasn't really paying attention because I was really trying just to get up those stairs, and I made it all the way up to the top, except for the last step. And I caught, uh-oh, my toe on that last step, and I did like one of these Supermans and caught myself right at the end, and Russell looked over, he's like, oh. I was like, yeah, right? The idea is, had I had my lamp with me, had I had my light, that never would have transpired. And that's the idea of what God's light does for us. It illumines the path in front of us. There was a study done, by the way, from the Center of Biblical Engagement, and they issued a report about people that read their Bible four days a week. And they, just, they asked them, hey, let's talk about some of these issues in your life. And if you're prone to read your Bible just four days a week, if you spend time in God's word, what happens? And they found out just these kind of fascinating statistics. They said the, the likelihood of someone getting drunk is 57% lower. The likelihood of having sex outside of marriage is 68% lower. 
The likelihood of someone looking at pornography is 61% lower. Gambling, 75% lower. All of these habits combined that they said were 57% lower from someone spending just four days a week in their word, just washing themselves with the truth of God's word. Can I encourage you as you leave this place to let that be a habit of yours? Not in a box-checking ritual as you have to do it to earn God's favor, but a desire to say, Lord, what is here is real. And even better, do it in a group of friends. Grab a reading plan that's online. There are plenty of great apps out there that will walk you through stuff to read. Better yet, open up the book of John. And I would encourage you to start here. Reread where we have been this week. And you're going to see there are so many beautiful things in this 21-chapter book that we didn't even have time to talk about. And yet God will use the truth of that to wash over you. So again, the first of these three things that God uses, his word to sanctify us, to set us apart. Secondly, his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in all of us who have put our faith in Christ. And after he uh, raised from the dead, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And in John chapter 20, verse 22, he says, receive now the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is not a force. He's a person. How many of you are Star Wars fans? I know there's more of you out there than that. I grew up on Star Wars. I loved it. I loved it. Now there's another generation uh, that is watching it. Star Wars ruined the Holy Spirit for me because of the force, right? So I thought as a non-Christian, the force was just like this hmm, thing that you like tapped into or, or whatever. Uh, that's not the idea at all. The Holy Spirit's not a force. He is a person. The third person of the Trinity. He is God. And we are called to walk with him. Listen to this as Jesus describes the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 16 and following. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, that he will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is the divine presence of God dwelling inside of the believer forever. And you have full access to the power of the Spirit at all times for the rest of your life. Jesus says in chapter 14 of John, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. A reminder that the Spirit of God is always with you. Again in verse 20, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is revolutionary to the disciples. They have walked with Jesus. They have spent time alongside of him. But now the very God of the universe is going to live inside of them. This is mind-blowing. It's the promise of indwelling. Not fully understood yet by these disciples, but something is beginning to change with the believer's relationship with the Holy Spirit. Jesus says again in chapter 14, verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So part of the Spirit's job that indwells us is to teach us, to instruct us, and to remind us what Jesus said. John chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is, not, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says it's actually better that I leave because I'm going to send you the helper. 
I can only be in one place at one time. But if I leave, I will send the Spirit that will indwell every believer like he never has before. He goes on to say in John chapter 16, verse 8, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Some of you felt that last night. The Holy Spirit's presence that convicted you of your sin. Not in a guilt or shameful way, but say, hey, be honest about that. Live open before me and come to me. I love you. We need to be honest about our sin, but you have permission to come. And just like God's word, a primary role of the Holy Spirit is to transform us to be more like Christ. John chapter 16, verse 13 says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. For he will take of mine and disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, he who takes of mine will disclose to you. So the Holy Spirit's job is to reveal to us truth. Now, something very significant happened between the Old Testament understanding of the Holy Spirit and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, as we read about the Holy Spirit, whose presence all the way is seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. We see him early on in the text. But what's interesting about the Spirit of God is he would come and he would go. He would bring his power and his provision maybe to David or Samson and they would, uh, they would do something empowered by the Spirit and then the Spirit would leave. It didn't indwell. It wasn't permanent like it is then today. Something changed in the New Testament. And Jesus says again, it's good that I go because I will send the Spirit and he will be with you not just like he was in the Old Testament to empower you for an act and then leave, but he will be present in your life forever. Jesus, again, being at one place in a time, only at one place in a time, said that, that's why it's better that I leave because the Spirit will be in you. And the reality is, friends, if you have put your faith in Christ, the Spirit is in you. He is already here. He is present in every one of us. Listen to this in Ephesians chapter 1 that describes the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel, were sealed uh, sorry, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, were sealed in him with the Holy Scriptures, or the Holy Spirit of promise. You have given him as a pledge of your inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Paul says when you believe the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The idea of sealing is he is permanent. He does not come and leave. You did nothing to earn him. There's nothing you can do to lose him. So you can walk out of here today with the full assurance that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And as a result of that, God knows you fully. He accepts you fully. He loves you fully. And he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he is always with us. When we're making great decisions and we feel like we're walking with the Lord, he's with us. When we're struggling with sin, as Paul did in Romans chapter 7, and are battling the flesh and sometimes failing and walking back through old sin patterns and doing things that we wish we weren't still doing, 
He's with you. He loves you. He is present within you. And he's going to lead you into all truth. So the question is, how do we do that? Is we have this new person who literally has taken up residence inside of us. How do we do that? I want to draw our mind back to Nicodemus of John chapter 3. And Jesus says to him, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. Everyone who is born of the spirit is the same. There is a power at work in our lives, but we must be open to it. And we have two choices, to walk in what Jesus says is the flesh, our old nature, who we used to be before we put ourselves in Christ, or this new nature that we have of the spirit. And we can choose to walk in either. And Jesus says, like toddlers learning to walk for the first time, it's going to be strange. It's going to feel awkward as we learn to embrace the spirit and walk in him. Walking in the flesh comes naturally. My sin patterns in my life are very well worn. They have been there for years and years in my life, and they seem to me like throwing right-handed. Walking in the Spirit is like me throwing left-handed. It's awkward. It's strange. I have to practice it over time. But as I do that, I will become more natural at doing that. This, by the way, is an ongoing process that is going to take place in our lives from the moment you put your faith in Christ until you die or God takes you home. Galatians 5 says this, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the desires that you please. There's this idea that we participate with God in this process, in the spirit and the flesh that are in opposition with one another. It's a messy process. But Paul says in Colossians, Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on this earth. The idea is we have a, a role to play in that work of the Spirit in our lives. We have to participate. We have to be willing and say, Lord, I want you to use me. There's days that's going to go well. There's days that's going to go poorly. But the Spirit is there in our lives, having sealed us uh, in a promise that he will one day return and get us, and he has given us power and access to the same uh, power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. God's word, God's spirit, and finally now God's people. Listen to what John says about people in our lives. He says this in John chapter 13, verse 35. He says, a new commandment I give you also, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There are four different words, by the way, in the original language of the New Testament that describe love. One has this idea of a romantic love, another of a friendship type of love, one that you would have maybe for your family, and one is a Godward love, a sacrificial love that gives without expecting in return, that lays its life down. When, when John Jesus here, through John's pen, describes the type of love that we're to have one for one another as believers in Jesus Christ. It's this God-like love, agape, that we're to have for one another. This is how others will know that we are in him because we love one another in this way. And as we enter into this new relationship with other believers, it won't be easy, but it can be powerful and meaningful if we do that. 
Did you know, by the way, in our New Testament, there are over 60 one another's that are mentioned, that we're to love one another, that we're to pray for one another, that we're to bear one another's burdens, to serve one another. The idea in the New Testament is it's not an individual sport. We need to do this together. The one another's are part of our journey together. We need other men and other women in our life to help us walk this thing out. We are hardwired for relationships. You cannot walk with God by yourself and expect to be successful. John chapter 16, verse 33 says it like this. These things that I have spoken to you, that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Friends, the camp high that you are on right now possibly is amazing. But as you go down that hill, you know tribulation uh, certainly is going to come. And to be, again, a truth teller to you, I just want to prepare you for that. And one of the best ways you can prepare for the difficulty that may be coming in your world as this kind of bubble that we have been blessed to be in for a week changes is to gather other believers in your life. As you think about the original 12 disciples, all of these men, speaking of trouble, would ultimately be martyred. All but one, John, actually the one we're reading. They would lay their life down for what they believed. Now, I don't imagine any of you are going to have to lay your life down for your faith, but there is a certain boldness that you're going to need to have, a certain willingness to be confident in who you're in, to talk about your faith. Friends, I feel for you guys. My middle school and high school years were some of the most awkward times of my life. And to be bold about Christ seems so foreign and so hard. But I want to encourage you as you head down the hill and back to life, to consider doing that, and to do that alongside other brothers and sisters who will lock arms with you in that process. So can I ask you a question in regards to that idea? Who are your people? Who are the people in your life that are gonna help you do that? Some of you came here with those people, right? You came to this place walking with the Lord, you have one or two or five people in your life that are doing that together. You're encouraging one another. When hard days hit and it's, it's difficult to be a believer, you're spurring one another on, as the book of Hebrews says, to, to love and good deeds, right? And for you, fantastic. Keep walking that out. Y'all need one another. Keep doing that. There are others of you, as you think about coming up here, you didn't have that. And maybe it's because you were one of those that said, hey, listen, I need to put my faith in Christ, and the people that I've been running with are not the same type of people that I need to be around moving forward. You need to go search those people out. You need to find them. You need to have a posse in your life that will encourage you and that you can also provide encouragement for. As I think about some of the friends that I rolled with in high school and the decisions that I was making, uh, I probably, if I'm honest, needed to kind of cut ties with some of them for the decisions that they were making because I was way too susceptible to doing the same things. And it's not that I want to put them on blast or never speak to them again, but I need a different type of person in my life. So if that maybe is you, I want to strongly encourage you to do that. But you're going to have to be intentional. You're going to have to put yourself out there. It's going to be awkward. It is going to be uncomfortable to find a new person to sit with at the lunch table, to figure out who am I going to hang out with on the weekends? Who is my crew going to be? But that's important for all of our lives. So as you think about that idea, I want to encourage you to go find your people. Friends, I am still today exchanging text messages as a 47-year-old man with a group of friends from high school that are buddies to me to this day. Some of the people in this room 
are going to help you walk with Jesus in such a compelling way that those relationships will be a bond that you will celebrate together one day in heaven. They will stand with you at your weddings. They will be there at the birth of your kids. Uh, They will be a support system to you when you have a miscarriage later in life, whatever it may be. But you need those people. And the time to find them is now. Now. So can I invite you, as we close up our time together and as we roll down this hill, would you be open to allow God to use these three different vehicles in your life? God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. Will you go home here with simply a commitment to go read God's word? Again, not in a moralistic, go check a box type of way, but the idea of this is nourishment for my soul. And start today when you get home and go read John 1. Go read half of John 1. Go read John 1, 1 and call it a day. And say, Lord, what do you have for me in this? In the beginning. And just continue to read. Would you embrace the power of God's spirit that lives within you? Would you know that you are loved, that you are secure, that your identity has forever been changed, that you are in him, and he is in you, and there is nothing you can do to change that. There's no amount of sin that you can commit that will make the spirit leave you. He says, no, I've set up shop here, and I'm not going anywhere because I love you. And will you go find your people that you'll walk with God with as you go down this hill that will encourage you to live boldly? Friends, can I be honest with you? Ten people. Ten people in this audience that will boldly proclaim their faith and just be honest will change the culture of this entire school. Ten people. Ten men, ten women that are simply willing to stand up for what they believe and say, I want to walk with Jesus, and I am not ashamed of the testimony that God has given me. I'm not going to bury my faith underneath a rock. I'm not going to hide anymore. If some of you will step up and just say, I'm going to do that. And I don't care what, I, what people say about me. I don't care what ends up uh, on, on Instagram or it, whatever it may be regarding who I am. I'm going to boldly proclaim Christ. The culture of this school in a year will be completely different if you'll walk that out. And you'll be courageous enough to be who God has made you to be. And I pray that you have the courage to do that. That you would walk arm in arm with other believers and boldly proclaim the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on your behalf. So friends, in closing, would we be willing to do that? I've had a great week with you and I pray that as you go down this hill and as I continue to pray for you, that God would do a work in your lives, that you would remember who you are in him, that he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit of power and he loves you and you are known, you are accepted and cared deeply for by him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love for us. We thank you that the Holy Spirit, your spirit, not a force, but a person, very God, lives inside of us. For those who have believed the gospel, who have put our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, would we leave this place changed? And God, as we work this thing out, like toddlers who fall and get back up and stumble and make bad decisions, God, you're with us in all of that. But we're loved. We're accepted. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Would we remember that? That the shame and guilt of what used to define us, God, that is gone. We are new in you because you have declared it so. The God who made the heavens and the earth and the stars also 
has adopted us into your family. Father, we are mind blown by that. And we are so grateful to be called your kids. You are our Abba. You are our Father. We love you and we thank you for Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on our behalf, that we can know you and that we will spend most assuredly eternity with you.